This podcast is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, as we are clamping down in Australia, particularly on even harsher quarantine zones, the international border lockdown has happened, the local state border lockdown has happened, and COVID-19 is just not slowing down fast enough. So catering companies like Bella Catering have flipped into home delivery. If you guys go to bellacatering.com.au, you can find an insane array of beautiful home-cooked meals that can be delivered to your door. They are still an essential service. Why go out and brave shopping centers with absolute crazy people who want to sneeze coronavirus right into your face? Why not just stay online and order delicious catering from bellacatering.com.au? Glenn, Maria, the team, they're absolutely fantastic. Get onto their website right now. I definitely highly recommend the look of the butter chicken and the individualized $4 cheesecakes. Do it right now. You have to. And now, on to the show. This is an excerpt from All the President's Men by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. I think I do remember something about that, the librarian replied. He took out a whole bunch of material on the subject of Senator Kennedy and Chappaquiddick. Mrs. Slasher added, I thought I had it in my notes, and asked Bernstein to call back if she had a chance to check the records. I think the book you probably mean is the one by Jack Olson, The Bridge at Chappaquiddick, Mrs. Slasher said on the second call. Bernstein asked when Hunt had borrowed the book. Mrs. Slasher asked him to hold the line. When she returned to the phone a few minutes later, she sounded agitated. Uh, I don't have a card that Mr. Hunt took out, she said. I remember he getting the book for someone, but there was no card on Mr. Hunt taking it out. There was no card on the book at all. She'd never had any requests from Hunt. She referred Bernstein to the press office. She didn't know who Hunt was. Woodward then called her and asked about Kennedy material. I had no business giving that out, she replied. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is a man who is more machine now than man, basically twisted and evil by the relentless onslaught of movie news. And in this world that has completely imploded into a sort of constant state of streaming announcements, his newsletter, Always Be Watching, is something that you must subscribe to. He's also one of the sort of low-key trailblazers in Australian pop culture podcasting. He's been doing it for a freaking long time. He is an Australian podcasting award-winning producer, and he's my buddy. Uh, and he's the the voice behind Always Be Watching. We've chatted a couple of times. He's come onto One Heat Minute. He's a One Heat Minute crew member. And he's just an all-round reliable movie and culture chatter. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct pleasure to welcome Mr. Dan Barrett. Dan, welcome back. Look, that's a hell of an intro. I'm thinking about the idea of doing the very thing, um, various minutes with you. I like doing a tour of like Nam or something. And so I'm, <laughs> tour of I'm duty. somewhat concerned. Like I, I don't have a younger brother, but I'm concerned that if I went missing over the enemy <laughs> line, that is your various minute podcast. If my saving private Ryan at home would have to, you know, be rescued so that there's not two brothers trapped behind enemy lines. But I don't have a brother, so it's a moot point. <laughs> it's a moot point. You may actually have to get one of any of the co-hosts um, uh, that, that join you. <laughs> uh, say, Chris, uh, you need to reach out. You need to do, you know, you need to be in that Damon slot. We got to, you know, we got to, we got to save you. We got to get, we got to sort that out. You got to get in the Hank slot. You got to jump into your size more. I think Chris could do a good size more if he really tried. Tell him to stretch. Yeah. So this is Chris Yates, my podcast. And we always be watching podcasts. 
where you talk about TV shows and movies that we've been watching. And it's going to be difficult this week because I've already got like a full roster, but I've also added in a classic little film you might have heard of before called Blake called all the president's men bless you bless your heart you um you are a relentless viewer and so i'm always interested about what you've got to say uh on these journeys because you you end up wrangling things out you know you brought the whole buddy cop angle and lethal weapon out of heat i never thought that was going to happen <laughs> um uh, i think we talked then in the next episode you brought out point break because we just somehow went down a gary Busey rabbit hole and uh and i'm just i'm just going to marvel at what we're doing in the 29th minute of alan j Pakula's 1976 masterpiece all the president's men um, because not many people yeah. know, they would know your voice and they know you're a movie and you're a TV aficionado, but they also may or may not know you're kind of a guy who's worked in a newsroom. Uh, I mean, loosely in a newsroom. So I've been the deputy editor of a trade press magazine, but like, obviously, you know, we're just cowtailing to the, you know, whims and various media organizations that I was doing, but, uh, like I've never really done like hard hitting news journalism. And there's been maybe a part of me, so look, when I grew up, I was really excited about the idea of becoming a journalist. Like that was kind of what I was thinking initially. Um, actually, maybe initially I wanted to become a lawyer because I used to watch a lot of Terry Mason as a kid. But <laughs> journalism kind of, journalism factored in at some point. And I think that all the president's men actually factored in quite heavily to my interest in journalism to begin with. And as my career has gone, it's never really moved in the direction of journalism. Like at university, I realized that journalism probably wasn't quite my thing. I don't think I've really got that sort of need to keep on digging and really to, to uh, you know, do the hard yards, the actual the procedural work of journalism. And I don't think that was necessarily for me. I, I'm certainly happy doing an interview or two and writing up a story. But like just that sort of dogged need to be able to really get to the cores and issues that need, you know, days, if not months, if not sometimes years of your life. I didn't realize, didn't really think that was necessarily for me. And so part of me has always thought, well, what if I actually did go down that route? But what I've been thinking about lately and sitting down watching all the president's men kind of solidified this idea for me is that everything that I know about newsroom journalism really comes from movies and TV shows from the 70s and 80s. And then it just kind of stops. And it's because there's no movies or TV shows about journalism anymore. No. Like, have you noticed this? Like, it's a complete absence. There's, like the last one I can really think of that did it well was the one Howard film from '92, The Paper. Yeah, pa outside of that, I can't think of that many more. There's a really great one that one of the guests, Dana Calvo, on this show, who's now mm. a co-showrunner on things like Narcos on Netflix, and the, I think now basically stalled doing the Sisterhood television show, which was going to be a companion to um, Danny Villeneuve's film. Um, but she yeah. she did a really great show that only lasted a season on Amazon. Unfortunately, it's called Good Girls Revolt, and it's about it's sort of like a you know a. Fe a a feminist answer to kind of madmen, like it's set in a newsroom and it's kind of the awakening of a whole bunch of, um, you know, a, a female journalist, female writers, Nora Ephron stars, like the, the, as a character, the, the person Nora Ephron uh, is in the, is in sort of entangled in this semi-fictional thing. And that definitely has a newsroom feel and a newsroom pace, but no, it takes until your spotlights. It takes until the fifth season of the wire. Um, you know, I, the, they're few and far between and when they hit, they hit like a lightning bolt and a lot of the time they're just sort of like, they're just sort of ignored because in modern journalism times, it's not quite as sexy as it was 
you know, hammering away on a typewriter, having to get an interview, having to, you know, p- you know, pound, pound those old phones, you know, those old turnstile sort of dialing, you know, it's not, it's not as pretty to look at, uh, you know, interviews where you're hitting record on your iPhone and, you know, uh, running and using voice, <laughs> voice conversion to try and semi type yeah. something as you're driving. You know, th- I think the technology sort of hinders some of that because it's it stopped being sexy, but there are a couple out there, but then invariably just get entangled as thrillers and things like that. Okay, so there's a couple of things touched upon there. So you mentioned The Girl's Revolt, which I have seen a few episodes of. The thing about Shirley, so I think it's worth noting that that was a period set um, yes. show from, was it the early 60s, I think it was set, just yeah. right at the beginning of, um, you know, like the sort of college age or the movement. Um, so you've got that in place. There wasn't a modern day newsroom, but it's very much a throwback to the idea of what news once was. Yes. And there's been a couple of movies, so I'm thinking about things like, say, Shattered Glass. Yes. Uh, you mentioned Spotlight. And those are great contemporary movies, but again, they have to look back about 10 years in order to, you know, tell their story. The only thing I can think of that's actually contemporary, like, newsroom environment is the HBO show called The Newsroom. And so you've got that, but that, I don't know, there was something about that that never really quite felt as romantic, I guess, as a lot of the other stories about news gathering. Because that's the thing with stories set in newsrooms, are very much about the romance. Like, there's something that's just um, so, and it probably just comes from like that 1940s sort of um, Howard Hawks sort of era, like news um, stories where there was just like it was a male, female, and there's like a bit of sexual tension going on. And so, like, there's that romance that I think is kind of inbuilt to the idea of telling a story about journalism. And of course, it's very idealistic and all the presence men really tapped into a lot of the ideas of the romance of journalism while still being a very grounded real world story, which obviously based on a real world story. Yeah. I think newsrooms, you, you pretty much spot on. That's kind of the, the, the example in a modern day and they, but you know, I guess the difference is newsroom. It would be like if all the president's men and the main character was Bradley, much like the post is right. So I think yeah. one of the, one of the strengths of the newsroom, uh, you know, the overwhelming strength is Daniels because he's just amazing. And, and the challenge is the grunt work of the other journos. Not a lot of them is pounding pavement. Like probably the best episodes of that newsroom are when they're out, like they've got reporters out getting stories, interviewing people, doing things. But like you often get, caught in the echo chamber of that like static place and there's none of that sort of escape you know there's there should be the tension and the fire and then you get out and i think that that's what this movie balances but yeah the newsroom the newsroom too though very tactically does like a it's like it was like a year and a half behind the news cycle so it could kind of retroactively commentate on things but in a that had a semi kind of immediacy because of the way they followed stories. You knew what they were talking, like you knew how they were going to engage with things and, and could engage with things in a more objective way. But you, you're pretty spot on, right? There almost has to be, um, it almost has to be a throwback in some way. Yeah. But I kind of, okay. So when I'm thinking about, okay. So when I first started talking, I was talking about how I grew up with the idea of what a newsroom was. And so, in my mind, when I think about newsrooms, I think about all the president's men, I think about Lois Lane working the Daily Planner, and right. I think about the 19, like late 1970s TV spin-off from the Mary Tyler Moore show called New Grant, which they took the sitcom character and put him into an hour-long drama series. Uh, and it won a number of awards over that in the four to five years that it ran for. And it was just New Grant running a newsroom in, I want to say, San Francisco. 
And I think about these three shows, and that really defines to me what a news organization looks like. And I think that there's no, um, like, there's something about the fact that all three of those examples are set in newspapers as opposed to TV or radio news. Okay, and I think the idea of romance within a news environment, I think the idea of newspapers kind of needs to play a role in that as well. There's something about newspapers which feels like such a throwback, but also unlike TV, and this is where I think the newsroom lacks the romance, you don't have deadlines that you need to hit. There's always something about the fact that they have to stop the presses, they've got to be able to hit very specific deadlines to make sure that the newsroom is being published and then the next day it begins all over again. And so it's this constant churn that your passion is rejuvenated every day or tested. But at the same time, like there's a reset button that happens every 24 hours. And there's something just magical about that. And I often think that, as you were talking about earlier, the technology involved these days, if there's any romance in that, I think there is. But I also think that maybe something which needs to be tapped upon in a modern day um, story environment when you're creating a TV show or a movie it's the idea of maybe you have to set in the newspaper, but a newspaper in 2020 isn't a great place to work. No. Outside of a couple of papers like, say, the New York Times or the Washington Post, you've really got newspapers that are really hard times, as evidence in the last couple of weeks with local papers in Australia being shut down, a whole bunch in the US that are looking at shutting down as well. Um, there's something about the romance of having to struggle in those kinds of environments. That's right for a TV show right now. Nobody's doing it. And if you want to get in contact with me, I've got ideas. <laughs> I was like, where is this winding up into? It's a pitch, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Dan is your man. It is a bit, look, I don't disagree. I, um, look, I, I, on my I, hard drive, I've got a one-pager, okay? I've got a script treatment ready to go. <laughs> like, I'm set. Like, just drop me a line. Look, Hollywood's going to be starting up again in a couple of months' time. You're going to need ideas. I've got it. Listen, I, I do have it on good authority that there are people um, uh, uh, from Hollywood who have listened to this uh, podcast feed. So, um, you know, Dan, you've got as good a chance as any of us throwing a pitch out there right now into this show. <laughs> I love it. So what we're going to do is Dan and I are going to quickly have a look at this minute. This is a great minute. There are so many great sequences of this film. One of the things I do adore about this particular minute and in the sort of surrounding minutes is – the context that it sets for you that these two guys have not yet fallen into their operating rhythm, the way that they're going to bounce off of each other. They haven't got the chemistry yet. They're still sort of, they're still at odds. Um, their techniques aren't complementing one another just yet. And I really like the tension in these sequences, but it's the, the this working relationship, this partnership is, is in the stages of being forged. And so Dan and I are going to have a look at it right now. We're going to, uh, you guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Obviously we talked about it on the other side of the minute, but I'd just like to talk about your contention that um, there's been no sort of bond uh, forged between them. I actually think that bond happens in this very minute. It does, it's, which is very exciting. The, the tension is there and uh, they kind of get, uh, the tension is there, but the bond is forged. Here we go. And then she comes back to Donna even though Woodward. Mr. Woodward, Ken Clawson calling back. I've just talked with the librarian. Yes, sir. And she denies that the conversation with Mr. Bernstein ever took place and she I'm said sorry. she referred Excuse him to me, sir. I'm sorry. You say she denies even knowing about the conversation taking place? That's right. Uh, 
Uh, she said someone did call her asking about Mr. Hunt, but all she did was refer him to the press office, and she denies that any other Total conversation bullshit. took place. Uh, I hope that's been of some help to you. Thank you. Uh -huh. Got to get something on paper. Why, very kind. Mona? Excuse me. Mona, could you take any calls? Yes. Where's my note? If I get any calls. I don't know where. Yeah, so, look, part of what I actually really like about this minute is it touches upon one of the things that I really enjoy doing in the world, which is telling everyone about the whole of age that I think Washington, D.C. that time and went to the Capitol building. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so I've seen the library. It was very exciting in real life. And when I saw the library, it was very much thinking about this minute. But the thing that I think of when I, when I watched this minute isn't necessarily when I went to the library, I actually saw it in real life. Really, it's the clip from The Simpsons, which aids this entirely, where uh, Lisa and Bart are at the library and they're doing a little bit of research, and then you see the camera lift up from the top, and you see that iconic shot of the library just coming from the ceiling, well, rising up to the ceiling. Earlier when we started chatting, I said that I didn't have the dogged um, internal, well, the, the drive, that ability to be able to just dedicate um, hours, if not days or months of your life, to be able to go through the minutiae of digging up sort of facts and finding leads and actually going a bit further in. And that's kind of what the scene's all about. This is them going to the library. This is them doing the sort of um, shoe-wearing work of actual journalism. And so they get to this library. And what I really like about this scene is that 30 seconds of this minute is really just that camera lifting up from the table at the barat as they're going through the various boxes of, uh, of records that they're running through. And as the camera lifts, you see that they're sitting at the desk and they're, they're involved in work that's going to take them possibly a couple of hours, if not days, to go through all of those records. You don't know how long that's going to take because there's a lot of material to work through. Box upon box upon box being dropped on that desk. But as that camera lifts, you see all the other people in the library doing their various work. And while we're watching the story of these two journalists with whom are dedicated to the cause of journalism, each of the people, just by the nature of the room that they're in, each of the people are pretty much probably worthy of their own film. And from their perspective, they probably are the stars of their own movie, yes. which is they're in one of the most important libraries in the world. And each of them are there with a very specific purpose and have a story that led to them being in that very space. So as that camera's listening, you're seeing that each one of these people in this room, including our intrepid journalists, they have their own big story that's taking place. And it's all just being lost in the... Um, large encompassing camera shot. Like, it's just there's so many stories taking place, even though we're just focused on this one story, which is being shown as a much smaller part of a much larger institutional body that is Washington, D.C. Yeah, I, I, I always think about that not only in the library. The library is like the emphasis. It's like the, the, the final exclamation point. And this movie consistently dwarfs these guys and shows that the systems and the machinations of all the things that are around them are bigger than them. And I love that in both the newsroom, and this is like a real credit to Pacula and the team in construction uh, of the, the actual living newsroom and all these other journos, is 
no one in that journal, like no no other journalist in that space in the in the minute that in, in the focal point of the minute that we're talking about and the follow on to what you're referencing in the upcoming minute, no other journalist in that space feels like they've they're they're reverential for the work of Woodward and Bernstein. Like they're getting on with their stuff. Like they're doing just as important as stories. And 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 I think in this moment with these guys, it's only because the lens is here. And I think that that's that. I don't know if it's like sort of an everyman, egalitarian sort of quality that, I don't know, maybe Goldman brings or, or, or just something that Pacula understands with, you know, putting institutions in relation to people in all of his great paranoia trilogy, whether it's clue, whether it's parallax view, whether it's this, but I, I, I totally agree. There's, there's something so great, not only in that moment, but in the conversation of that moment where an institution dwarfs you. And like in that, that on the phone call of like, she denies the conversation ever took place. You know, it's not, it's not like it is in 2020. Sometimes that entire concept feels crazy. It's like, oh, that conversation never took place. Well, I'm sure the NSA in 2020 could just dial that conversation back up in like 10 <laughs> seconds, you know, or most, you know, uh, phone companies and newsrooms probably have like call recording on all of their phones when they do calls out so that their reporters can be fact-checked, you know, on what they actually got from sources, etc. cetera. Um, but man, there is just something so, um, you know, it can be overwhelming with the pressure of like, if these institutions just shut their doors and everyone, you know, goes goes to the mattresses, as they say in The Godfather, then how are we ever going to help? How's this story ever going to break? How are we ever going to get any luck? Yeah. One of the things I like about the movie, sort of touch the song that you were just saying there, which is the idea of all the other journalists doing their work. And I know there's a couple of shots throughout the film. Like, I think there's none of that follows this, where they go back to the newsroom in a big way. Um, does this. But I've seen it a couple of other times throughout the film. Is uh, there's all these, like, obviously Woodward and Bernstein are always the focal point of anything that's happening. But anytime you see movement of other characters, it seems like the camera moves very deliberately past a whole bunch of other people that are there in the office. Like, it's always an active, busy newsroom for a lot of the scenes within the newsroom. And that seems very much about the idea that this is a newspaper. So you've got these guys who are working the city desk and are really sort of breaking the big news stories and the stories of the day. But then you've got these other journos who are just around there and you've probably got someone who's the um, TV writer. You've probably got someone who's uh, like looking after the clockwork. You've probably got all these other functions that take place within a newspaper. But you just focus very much on the story of these two guys. But much like the library, everyone else in the newsroom has work to be done and everyone's a vital, integral part of this news gathering organization. And the film never loses sight of that. And that's kind of what I really like. Everyone has a sense of purpose. It's kind of like, you know, when you watch Law and Order, and any time the police officers are doing the detective work at the beginning of the show, and they'll talk to that guy who's on the dock, he's always busy working. Like, he never stops to talk to the police and says, oh, there's police here, and they'll spend 15 minutes off to the side and then go back to work. Rather, they just keep on working. They'll keep on listing the boxes off the back of the crate. Now, now I have to uh, call like, you. I have to call you. Like, they'll just keep on going. I have to call you on something, Dan. You know just as well as anyone, that's an American cultural trait because an American <laughs> inherently, especially a white American, inherently doesn't feel like they're guilty. Like, you know, they, they don't feel guilty of anything. They are righteous. They're righteous people. So it reflects in, their, in a I'm, cultural text. No, in Australia, I'm, I'm, we're I'm not, a... I'm not, we're talking a, 
we're a penal colony. So when a cop comes and talks to you in Australia, you feel like you've done something wrong. So I feel like that that is, I think you could definitely underscore your point of like, you love the way that, that, that sort of, uh, there's that sort of fervor for like getting on with the job and, and that passion that is perhaps an American quality or maybe just a Western quality. I don't know what it is, but like a passion for the job exuberance, you know, just because there's an interruption, I'm going to get on with it. But I, I, I very much think that that law and order thing, like I've my grown up my whole life, maybe this, you know, actually says that I'm a bit of a degenerate, <laughs> but I've never ever looked at a law and order episode and seen a cop talking to someone and thought, man, uh, like, like that would happen in Australia. It would never happen. Australia would be like, call my lawyer, you know, or like, no, I'm not talking to you or immediately looking shifty and get taken to the police station under suspicion. See, I've never even looked at that way before. I've always looked at it more through that sort of prism of there's something about the US particularly where they want to see people actively working. Like they just have to continually be busy. They can't step aside and have either a moment where they're reluctant to talk to the police or whatever. But there's something about the fact that they're always active. Like they are always involved in their work while they talk to the police. It isn't really an issue of them just like pushing off their nerves or their concerns about talking to the phone. It's absolutely just about the fact that, you know, I'm a working man, I will keep on working regardless of, you know, this person who should be interrupting me from my workflow. Like, the idea of work just seems so integral to <laughs> like people, like US movies and TV shows, where that really actually reverberates through the culture broadly, but it reverberates through their culture. And you see that in Law and Order, you see that here, where every single person that Woodward and Bernstein are talking to are continuing to work. You can tell they have an internal reality that they've built around them that's structured around whatever their role is. So, you know, they'll be talking to the guy at the desk, and he is that guy. He's there wanting to help them. He doesn't have any other concerns he's focused on. It's really just, I'm here as a librarian to the library. I will give you the records. Like, you get a feeling that that guy is focused on getting them the records. But also, you've got to flip that on its head, which is, and this is the more insidious moment in the minute in question, is when someone, when, when Clawson is talking to these guys and he says, I'll do that investigation, he comes back, he lies straight to Woodward and Bernstein. Like it is a flat out, it is flat out perjury. He's lying his butt off. So then that same desire for work that same sort of drive to to deliver that same sort of like i'm gonna earn my keep here that is so deeply twisted when you're in a system or an organization that is twisted that is being scaffolded together by corruption because in that moment your reflex is to lie and i think that this is what is great and why the title of the movie and the book is all the president's men it's like these are folk loyal to Nixon to beyond a fault, like to, 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 to um, uh, espionage, essentially internal espionage. <laughs> like I will just lie. I will cheat. I'll do things. And, and it will be done because we've, we've convinced ourselves through, you know, his very sort of languid speeches and whatnot, that this is the right thing to do. And our, and our opponents are going to do the same thing and we need to do this, but it's just all, it's all smoke and mirrors for what is ultimately people who were just so power hungry and deeply fearful that they were going to lose it, that it was like reflexively constantly trying to do whatever they can to hold onto it and, and keep, keep people from probing too closely to what they were actually doing. 
Well, it's kind of interesting. So, I mean, obviously, this is a sort of thematic idea that reverberates through the film. And what I like is that Woodward and Bernstein are established so early in as the antithesis of that. Like, they are people who are pure and are willing to put themselves on the line in a way that doesn't necessarily make themselves look like that the hero or arbiter of what's right. So, I'm thinking one of my favorite scenes in this movie, and probably one of my favorite scenes really in cinema, takes place early in the film, which is the first time that Woodward and Bernstein are really sort of lumped together. And you've got uh, Woodward's been writing up an article and Bernstein's really walked past his desk. He's seen that the copy isn't very good and he just goes off and starts typing it up himself. And in that moment, as Woodward is confronting him and then Bernstein's like, you know, take a read of the copy. And Woodward takes a look at it and says, oh, actually, your copy is better than mine. And he comes to it with his notes saying, hey, look, you know, let's make this better. And it's about him not necessarily standing up there with the idea of American exceptionalism, that idea that one person can necessarily do everything. But really, he actually opens himself up and says, hey, look, I don't really have all the answers. Clearly, you do. Let's make this right. Let's make this work. And that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the film and comes through this like this minute entirely and goes through the rest of the film. Just that thematic idea that, oh gosh, I lost myself here. It's almost 10 o'clock at night. I've been up since five. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, but just that idea of, you know, just the pure vitality of wanting to tell the truth and just uh, be completely honest with yourself and those around you. And like that moment to me speaks about the honesty that I think these characters are bringing to it. And obviously, you want to create that juxtaposition between the conspiracy surrounding the Watergate um, tapes and the, you know, the recording taking place there um, versus, you know, the idealism of journalism. So these guys need to represent something. But the film doesn't just say, oh, you know, these guys represent it in a way that other films, I think, sort of have the pretense that these guys represent those kind of ideals. They actually really do show it. Like, you really do feel it just like in the bones of this movie. I, I wanna I wanna take you up on something you said a little bit earlier about you not having the instincts of a journo. Um and therefore, you know, that dogged journalistic pursuit. But you're a guy who like I, I think I've got the instincts. I'm just very lazy. <laughs> I, I want to establish that, that's, that I just right. wanted to scratch the surface on that because I'm like, I see you write a hell of a lot of stories. I see you produce a hell of a lot of content. I see you have uh, a desire to 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 push um, the boundaries to get a story out or to keep on top of stories or to break stories or to be on top of like what's happening on a wire, so to speak. But you, yeah, you just seem to, uh, you, you just seem to not want to admit that. <laughs> like, I don't know what, I don't, you're like, uh, maybe not. Well, you kind of, you kind of, uh, you definitely kind of have that instinct. I think it's uh, silly to say that you don't. I'm like Bob Woodward. I don't have the honesty I can like bring to myself. I can't tell myself that this is what's going on. I have to like just shade myself entirely with lies and conjecture. But I don't know. I think that there's something that you find in this movie, and it's very much that like that idea of being dogged enough to do something which you may not necessarily be passionate about at the beginning. But the further you actually involve yourself in the process of work, the further you actually sort of uh, progress in terms of actually getting to the heart of whatever the, a journalist. Um, whatever the story is that they're chasing. And I don't think I've really got that. I think that I'm interested in a subject matter and I can follow that subject matter for years, if not decades, which I kind of have with reporting about the media and TV and screen culture particularly. 
but there's something about this where, you know, I don't think that before the story came out, either of these guys were necessarily passionate about wire recording. But they found that passion. They found that sort of desire to get to the truth and expose the corruption that's taking place purely because they found themselves involved in the material. And the further you get involved in the material, the more you actually want to bring that material to life. And I don't know if I've actually got that, which, you know, these characters do. And that's what's very admirable. And that's where the romance of this film really comes into it. Because you're watching these characters that are kind of putting their entire lives on the line for being able to sit in a library and just go through card after card and just, you know, call log. That takes a lot of, it's dogged determinism. Yeah, well, I mean, look, we can't always be Woodward and Bernstein, Dan. I'm, I, I'm just saying that one of the both of us may be one of the extras. You know, I'm just all I'm, all I'm proposing is that we're in the background doing the crosswords, Dan. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> At the very least, we're out in the in the background doing the podcast. Um, look, you, you know, you know what was fascinating watching all the background extras is I'm thinking about this time that we're in, where you know we've got the stupid virus around. And the biggest concern I have in the moment, and this maybe speaks to my immaturity as a person, but the biggest concern I have is I'm looking at my hair growing every day, and I'm thinking, I really need a haircut, but I can't really make that happen. And I'm watching all the haircuts of all the guys in the back who have that great sort of 1970s game show host hair, and it's just getting bigger and bigger, and my hair isn't that far off it now. <laughs> you, you, you're saying you've got unintentionally your self-isolation is putting you exactly in what one of these casting directors is looking for in terms of the hair department is that what you're saying I think absolutely <laughs> <laughs> well look it is always a pleasure to speak to you Dan Barrett on any podcast about any piece of content because invariably I get one gold nugget uh, that that is there and today it is that Thanks to self-isolation, um, you see yourself as a background actor in, in the Washington Post newsroom as recreated in Burbank by Robert Redford and Alan J. Pakula. Mate, thank you so much for being a part of the show. No problem at all. It kind of reminds me of, sorry, quick tangent. Uh, remember the movie High Fidelity where they're talking about wanting to be a musician and have like their album. And there's a guy, like the nerdy little dude in the back, he's like, oh, I just want to be in the background of a photo. Yes. Like, right at the back. Yes. That's where I want to be. I want to be right at the back of the scene <laughs> with the awesome 1970s user in here. And Blake, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about here. A huge thank you once again to Mr. Dan Barrett for being a guest on the show at the Dan Barrett. You can find him on Twitter. Alwaysbewatching.com is where you can find his newsletter and at abwatching if you want to follow Always Be Watching on Twitter, podcast and movie news into your inbox. Man, I just literally am always flabbergasted and impressed with Dan's ability to take the trajectory of a conversation in unexpected places and this time no less finishing with his delightful 70s hair. This has been another One Heat Minute production. Thank you so much for listening along. We have an amazing array of shows. One Heat Minute, obviously. The last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. Increment Vice. Josie and the Podcats. All the President's Minutes, which you're listening to today. And our daily podcast, Con Tan Gen, which is a tight 10, talking to a whole stack of folks in isolation, in quarantine, sort of accounting for in this community everything that's going down. Listen along to that daily. We're going to have great shows coming up for you, some unannounced stuff, which we are going to announce to tease for the future. But if you want to support us, we do have a Patreon, and you can find links to that on oneheatminute.com. 
If you want to go to our site, oneheatminute.com or incrementvice.com, you can find out more about the shows. And if you want to go to graffitiwithpunctuation.com, you can read about Contingent and our upcoming six-part limited series, Josie and the Podcasts. Until next time, thank you so much. Subscribe, rate, review, share. Thanks so much for listening.